Welcome to the God of My Closet podcast, where we explore life and light of the love who embraces all of our skeletons. I'm your host, Ben DeLong, author of There's a God in My Closet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, I am so uh, happy and elated to be joined by my friend and uh, my mentor, Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. It's a delight to be with you, Ben. Yeah, thank you. Um, Paul and I have been uh, connected now for about 11 years. Um, Paul, um, now did did you did you found um, Heart Connection with with Susanna or anybody else or? Yeah, Susanna and I. Uh, well, I uh, backstory. Uh, I did a doctor of ministry, and my focus was on the role of internalized shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came back from that with lots of ideas about how to help people figure that out and, yeah. and find some some grace beyond it. And I was frustrated because uh, the information I was giving to people was helpful, but it wasn't really transformative. Right. And I was invited to go through an experiential process uh, by an employer I was working for. As I did that, I began to realize we don't acquire shame intellectually. We acquire it experientially. Mm, yeah. So uh, t- about 21, almost 22 years ago now, Susanna, my wife, a clinical social worker, she and I, uh, started heart connection seminars, and uh, a lot of the exercises we do have been around for a long time. We just structured them differently and incorporated the whole shame piece into it. So, long answer to a short question. We started it. <laughs> okay, yeah, and that's how. Um, so there's uh, several um, different seminars and exercises that the heart connection does, but the the big one is called breakthrough, and that's the one that. Um, my wife Irene and I went through in 2008, and um, if you've um, read my book or maybe my blog, um, you've probably seen that I talk about breakthrough as as really being the catalyst for um, the spiritual journey that I went on. Um, and then a couple of years later, um, uh, some stuff came out um, in our marriage that was that we were trying to work through and. And Paul and his wife, Susanna, were just a huge part of um, directing us to some resources and just helping us through that time. So um, I am uh, very, very thankful for you, Paul. You've been a very important part of our lives. Well, it's been a delight, Ben, to to know you across these years and watch you and Irene uh, grow and uh, face more challenges and step through things courageously. And... uh, do your own work as well as uh, the, the more recent adventure of uh, adopting. It's been a delight to watch from afar. Hmm. Oh, thank you. So um, for those that are not um, maybe familiar with Heart Connection or with you, Paul, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you? Well, um, I'm uh, an old guy now. <laughs> I woke up, woke up one morning and realized how old I was. Um, I'm 71 years old. Uh, started off uh, in ministry uh, a long time ago. Uh, went through college, did a philosophy degree, went to seminary, 
did a D-man, and then worked um, 16 years in denominational administration. Mm. And uh, my intent was to uh, go into uh, ministry, but I got diverted into the denomination. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a crash and burn and wound up um, in an ER Mm. uh, and uh, wound up realizing I was septic. Uh, that was uh, part of my body, body was poisoned the rest of my body. And I, oh, wow. I was, I was dying, and uh, it kind of came on quite suddenly. Uh, at least probably it felt suddenly. I, I realized later I'd been sick a long time. Yeah. And some good friends uh, came by and said, uh, you know, I'd be working too hard, and I had been. And uh, they said, some other friends came by and said, well, you're, you know, you're kind of working for a dysfunctional organization. And I said, well, that's, that's true, but where's a functional organization to work for? Yeah. You know? <laughs> people, people bring, we bring our broken hearts into, into jobs, too. For sure. And, and then some people came in and they said, look, we're going we're gonna to give you a term that you haven't maybe put together. And they were words, they were words work and addiction. And I suddenly began to realize it wasn't how hard I was working, it wasn't where I was working, it was why I was working. I was working yeah. addictively to be enough. Oh, yeah. And uh, no job is really prepared to fill that hole in your soul. Yeah. And um, I realized that more was dying than my body. Uh, my relation, my wife was dying. But it was it was a very slow death, it's like the frog in the kittle. But instead of going temperature going higher, it goes colder, and you wake up wonder how to get frozen. Yeah. And uh, out of that, um, I made a choice to uh, go back to local church ministering, and I was on a large church staff uh, here in the area, and um, my job was small groups. And I um, had the opportunity to go around the country and visit a lot of large churches that had small groups. Mm. And I'm, I'm climbing my own codependency, learning curve, dysfunctional family, learning curve, reading lots of stuff. Yeah. And I realized all, all these churches had small groups, Bible studies, fellowships, but they also had support groups, often 12-step groups. Mm. And so I came back to uh, my church. We launched the regular kind of groups, fellowship groups. Yeah. And with some help of some twelve step friends, we launched a group called New Hope for Recovery. It was kind of generic twelve step. Mm. And um that launched me into looking at the whole issue of shame, which uh I really had no exposure to the whole dynamic of shame or yeah. the importance of shame. I'd never heard a sermon on shame. I had a hard time finding books on shame, particularly in, in a religious community, a spiritual community. Yeah. And, a shame. and uh, so that's kind of how I got launched into this thing. But I grew up in a very uh, legalistic, uh, conservative, fundamentalist type of uh, church. And so I, I, I kind of came out of that. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of lends itself in ministry to a work addiction model. Yeah. Because you're working for God. Yeah. Uh, my wife's competitor was not another woman. The third party was the church. Mm. And it's pretty hard for her to say, well, wait a minute. 
uh, you're not because I can always say, well, I'm working for God, so I got to go do this. Yeah. So that, again, I hope that helps give some context. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if you can um speak a little more. You 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 talk some about um getting exposed to the idea of shame and um can can you um when you were when you were first getting um getting an understanding of shame what what year was this do you think it was about uh let's see 80, 85 84 85 oh okay yeah so i so yeah i yeah like you said i mean nobody was really connecting that to spirituality the, the only uh, I found it I found a quick reference in a, in a theological dictionary that I never thought there'd be a reference sent to it and it wasn't much but it led me to another source of uh, some missionaries from uh, Asia mm, wrote okay. about shame in that culture and that gave me a little clue mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the interesting things I did when I first became aware that this whole issue of shame was something I didn't understand, but it was important. Uh, after a, a man left my office and he talked about a lot of his shame, I went to a computer, my computer, and it was, this is a long time ago, so I had a little word search program mm -hmm. in scripture. Yeah. And in those, in those days, almost all those programs were, fun, were programmed by fundamentalists, I think, because the King James is always the default. Right. Scripture. Yeah. And I grew up with that. So I, I put the word I put the word guilt in first to search for guilt in the Old and New Testament. Yeah. And I I did not trust the answer because there are only thirty three to thirty five times the word guilt is used in the King James Version. Yeah. Which shocked me because my pastor could find it twice every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, if you didn't have it, I'm going to give it to you before you leave because my product is forgiveness, and you say you need guilt to do that. Yeah. I put the words disgrace and shame in, and it was 192 hits. Wow. And it's like, what? I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, the new international version was the new one in those days, and it was like 192 hits on guilt because they changed like iniquity and uh, other words to guilt. Yeah. But there were, there were 300 references to shame and disgrace. Mm. It was like, uh, I, 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 these days I refer to it as uh, seeing the arrow in the FedEx logo. Yeah, yeah. And once you see it, it's hard not to see it. But I was blind to it before that. Mm. Well, and um, I've heard you talk about um, when you were doing you were with that, that large church and you were interacting with people and, um, <clears throat> and they'd talk to you and they'd say things like, they'd say they feel, they'd feel guilty for things that yeah. wouldn't make sense to feel guilty about. Can you kind of talk about that and how that led some to shame? Yeah. As I, as I listened to them, because I was climbing my learning curve and I was up front. So they thought I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> And so they would call me and say, can I come in and talk? I'm struggling with this stuff. And some would be authority issues and just life issues, relationship issues. And I would listen to them, and they would say things like, you know, I, I, uh, 
I feel so guilty that I didn't meet my parents' expectations. Mm. And so I'd say, well, what were their expectations? And after they told me their expectations, I thought, well, nobody could. I mean, that was impossible. <laughs> yeah. And they would say things like, um, I, I feel so guilty that I didn't know something that bad was going to happen before it happened. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how I would have known, but I still feel guilty because I somehow I should have known. Yeah. And then sometimes it was, I, I feel guilty that I didn't stop uh, an abuser when I was five or 15 or whatever. Yeah. And, and I'm sitting there listening to them and I'm thinking, you're not talking about something you've done wrong. Yeah. You're talking about wrongs that have been done to you. Oh, yeah. And they're using the word guilt, but they're because they're church people. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really talking about shame, but they don't they don't use that terminology. Yeah. In fact, Ben, one of the one of the things I ran into early on was a an interesting phrase because I was trying to do this research, and I came across several several sources that talked about people dealing with false guilt. Oh, yeah. And I thought, false guilt. So you're, you got people who are struggling with something. They've asked for forgiveness. They've done everything they can do. And so if they're still struggling with that, then it's false. And so it's like, that's like blaming them for the problem. Yeah, like they're just crazy. Yeah, it's like... It's like, here's 25 <laughs> scriptures, memorize these, and you'll get over it. Mm. Uh, that, uh, that was just, winds up being shaming to people. Yeah. Mm. Um, I've also heard you, you talk about um, the, the fact that shame is actually, um, if I'm putting this right, it's, it's, uh, it's an inherent quality to humans, and, there, and there's healthy shame and there's unhealthy shame. Um, versus versus guilt guilt is not inherent to our humanity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, and there are several different models of shame. Um, the the model that makes the most sense to me um, was uh, developed uh, by a uh, researcher named Tompkins T O N K I N S, and he looked at um, actually used his own children as an example. Mm. He he theory, his theory was that we're born with certain innate ethics. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to teach a baby, for example, how to um, um, get excited about something. When they, when they see something, a colorful object, their eyes go really wide. Yeah. And then uh, when they get interested in it, which is a little bit lower affect, so they're following it, they're, they're really interested in it. Uh, you don't have to teach a baby how to... Um, uh, kind of uh, squeeze its nose shut when it smells something noxious. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't have to teach a baby how to, um, when they taste something they don't want to taste, they they uh, spit it out. Mm -hmm. You don't have to teach them how to be angry. Yeah. So there's certain innate affects. What Tompkins looked at, he, he, saw, he saw when you take a child, an infant, a baby, and they're interested in something, a, a colorful object, a sound, a noise, and you take it away suddenly, uh -huh. they will either go to 
anger or they will go they will close their eyes and and fold themselves in which for him represented a, sh a shame affect yeah it was a it was a partial blocking of a desired experience they wanted to continue mm. his theory was that shame is an innate affect that we're born with the potential for shame okay um and affects in children tend to be uh, kind of black or white um, yeah. they can be a child can go from peaceful to crying loudly and then back to peaceful just kind of like on and off switch yeah and so what we do as adults when they're crying when they're upset is we walk around with them we talk to them we pat them uh, we're saying to them, we're helping them learn how to modulate their own ethics. Mm, yeah. So in his model of shame is, a, is an interruption to some desired result. Mm. Guilt is a learned response in the sense that you have to know something is wrong to feel guilty. Right. Now there's a combination um, in fact, I would I would suggest that guilt is a subset of shame. Mm, okay. That guilt is a is a type of shame about doing something wrong. Okay. So if I've done something wrong, I know it's wrong, and I have some shame about it. I may be motivated to um, apologize, make amends. Um, I'll feel bad. Yeah. Ask for forgiveness. Uh, and you see this in kids' behaviors all the time. They get caught. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did it. Yeah. yeah. They hold their head down. Yeah. We can also have guilt with no shame. So we do something wrong, but I have no shame about it. So I blow it off. It's no big deal. Yeah. My contention is we can also have asked for what we did wrong forgiveness and we can continue to carry boatloads of shame about the fact that we did it oh yeah that getting forgiveness for the guilt of the doing the wrong doesn't remedy automatically the deep feeling of i am wrong mm. i'm wrong for having done it i'm i'm inadequate i'm defective i'm broken i'm um, all kinds of words. I feel powerless. Uh, mm. So this shame can become internalized within us. Yeah. At a deep heart level. And it's a deep heart level of feeling um, I am not blank enough. Yeah. We'll fill in the blank. I'm not smart enough. I'm not handsome enough, pretty enough, uh, young enough, old enough. Fill in the blank. It's just, it's yeah. there. And the paradox of shame is that I need healthy shame to help function uh, both relationally as well as spiritually. Mm -hmm. Healthy shame allows me to embrace my imperfections and not be devastated by them. Mm, yeah. And healthy shame allows me to have a healthy spirituality without requiring being perfect enough to please God. Yeah. I don't know many of us are going to do that. Yeah. The other paradox is that 
the other aspect of shame is that sometimes people are born or become through life experiences they go into a place of shamelessness mm. they don't have the ability to have shame yeah which would tend them to be sociopathic oh yeah and the one, one this paradox thing um it's it's amazing to me that sometimes people who feel the most shameful inside will put on a mask of being shameless on the outside oh yeah so i'm ashamed of being ashamed yeah and it's it's not a cognitive process. It's, it's a it's an emotional process, reactive process. Yeah. So there's internalized shame, and there's uh, healthy shame, and then there's shameless. And shameless is not good, like guiltless. <laughs> right. The the other the other paradox of shame is that if I have enough shame, I've internalized. It might take me. Um, it might take me to the gutter to throw my life away. Like I'm, I'm worthless, mm -hmm. and, and anybody who tries to help me, I can't receive it. Mm. That same shame, though, can take other people and drive them to be at the heights of success. Yeah. So they're driven, driven, driven. Except inside, it's never enough. Yeah. It never fills the hole. Mm. Yeah, and it it strikes me that. Um, <clears throat> When you're talking about um, shame as this feeling of I'm not good or I'm not enough, um, <clears throat> I know for me growing up in a um, conservative church environment, um, there was just the the gospel that we were given was that um, you know we were given the gospel of original sin, um, right. which just kind of told us that. You know, I mean, to put it crudely, you're a piece of crap. Right. And and then, you know, on top of that, God has an anger problem. So that, <laughs> how right. are you going to get it right. taken care of? And and it's just it's so it's so tragic that 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 piles on the problem because our because we, you know, we're told we'll just do do the right things and you'll be OK. But that doesn't take care of the core problem that we just we think we're terrible. Right. Yeah. Um, a, a clue to the presence of shame in any system or in, internally is the frequency of the word should. Oh, yeah. Uh, should is always an indicator that there's potential shame involved because should seems to always involve a comparison. Yeah. <clears throat> what you should be doing. In, in fact, I, I will. I, I these days I didn't wasn't saying this when I knew you. Um, uh, close and personal. Yeah. Uh, I believe that should is often a setup, a predisposition for additional trauma in our lives. Yeah. <clears throat> hmm. Well, yeah, let's <clears throat> let's talk about that a little more, because a big theme in a lot of church environments is the idea of free will and right. that, well, you 
you have free will, so if you just made the right decisions, you know, if you just tried harder to make the right decisions, everything would be fine. But that that completely misunderstands the power of shame. It it misunderstands that, you know, most people don't understand what they're doing, and what they're doing is just what they think they need to do to survive. Right. Well, and and most of us who, um, most of us think we're making choices. Uh-huh. At a conscious level, but in reality, most of our choices are made at a process level, and then we justify them at a rational level. Right. Yeah. So, so we react. Um, again, trauma is such a huge word, and we think of trauma as the worst situations, but um, we can have trauma with a lot of hard work. So, as, as kids, mm-hmm. and, and and trauma will always predispose us. To be on the alert for in the next trauma. Yeah. I, I, I use the word internalized shame, but we can almost use the term internalized trauma. Right. And so I'm, I'm on the lookout for the next time I'm going to be in a situation where I might be humiliated, embarrassed, uh, uh, feel, feel too vulnerable, and I can spot it even where it isn't. <clears throat> but I don't know that I'm doing it. It's not a conscious thing. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a reactive um, response to situations that I think are out there. In fact, the interesting thing, um, James Finley made this statement uh, in, a, in a presentation I was I was listening to. Um, he says he's a trauma expert. He said mm-hmm. um, trauma almost always predisposes us to think to put the worst case story on any situation that we encounter. Oh yeah. That makes so a lot something of sense. happens and I and I will I will spin it to the worst case response. I I I know I know they know what they're doing. They did that on purpose. Right. As a self protective mechanism. Could be ten thousand other reasons they did what they did. Yeah. But I'm <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the worst case and my belief system is they should not have done that. Mm, yeah. Well, and so I, it just ampli- amplifies the shame, and it, it should. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. Well, on top of that, um, it was interesting because for me and Irene, um, you know, if you look at our past, <clears throat> Irene has you know way more overt examples of trauma in her past than I do. Um, but there, there's so many times where it became clear that she, she was in a better place than I was. And I, I realized that a lot of that was, I, I read in, um, John Bradshaw's book, um, healing the shame that binds us. He talks about how the power of trauma isn't always just the trauma itself. It's the inability to talk about it afterwards. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point. And Bradshaw points that out. Uh, another way to say that same thing: the trauma is not just the event that happens. Uh huh. It's really more impacted by what does or doesn't happen after the event. Oh yeah, yeah. For example, I'm going to use the word. Um, I'm going to use the word stoppage. At, at a point of trauma, there's an emotional stoppage. Mm. 
there's like an emotional shock uh, and it's disorienting. Yeah. And if that emotional, if that emotional shock or, or stoppage is addressed appropriately, if there's resources to address it, then the stoppage moves forward. Mm. If there's inadequate resources, the stoppage can stay for a long time until it's addressed. Yeah. But here's a simple, simple example. You, you go to a park and you see some kids playing and mm. these kids are having fun. And all of a sudden one of the kids falls down, scrapes their knee and mm. they start crying. They look around, where's mom or dad and run toward them. And if mom and dad are paying attention and reach down and pick them up and hold them and, and make over them and clean their leg off and maybe put a Band-Aid on it, give them a kiss, they get down from the lap and they run and they just go back out and play. Mm. Yeah. So there was a stoppage and then it was addressed with adequate resources and it picks right back up. Yeah. But when there's not adequate resources, what happens is that stoppage stays mm. and we begin to develop, we begin protection for that. We begin to figure out how to not let that happen again. Yeah. Um, here's an example. And I, Maybe you've seen this. I'm, I'm sure most of the people listening have seen this. Uh, you're around a group of people and everybody and friends and everybody kind of figures out how each person reacts to situations. And, and then all of a sudden, one person starts just ranting like a five-year-old. They're just throwing a temper tantrum over something. Yeah. That probably represents a, an emotional stoppage where they are responding to something with the same coping skills they had at the age when the stoppage happened. Oh yeah. Yeah. And finding healing for that, because what we often do then unconsciously is we look for resources of a person, a relationship, a job, something, that will be adequate resources for that stoppage. We don't mm. know we're doing it. Yeah. But none of those resources will work until we are at a place as the adult we are to come back to that stoppage and be present with it in a healing way. Yeah. Mm. Which is kind of what we do in Breakthrough. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes so much sense because I know <clears throat> for me, my episode of trauma from when I was a kid um you know involved the the way that my my dad reacted to me about something and and of course you know he had his own issues and his own inability to deal with stress um but it wasn't it wasn't just how he reacted it was that after that he walked away and we never talked about it again right right and and of again that's you know Part of that is, you know, his his family of origin, they didn't know how to talk about stuff either. Right, right. Yeah, um, it roars line, uh, Richard Roar's line, uh, heart wounds that are not transformed will be transferred is way too true. Yeah. Way too true. Yeah, you know, the other piece, Ben, is um, I don't want to minimize or maximize anybody's trauma, but sometimes when trauma is an event 
that's on a particular day at a particular time. Mm -hmm. That's that's one experience of trauma. But when trauma is persistently there, when it's like you always have to be on guard, you always have to walk on eggshells, you never know what's going to happen next. Mm. That isn't as dr dramatic as a particular day where somebody gets abused, but it is it is it is a it is a deep wound as well, and we 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 sometimes minimize that. Yeah. But in reality, it it's very pervasive. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and I, um. I, if I understand right, I've, I've read about how a lot of, um, dysfunctional behavior and, and, um, even some mental illness comes from that long exposure where you are constant, like your, your fight or flight mechanism is constantly switched on right. and it, and it wears, it wears down on you physically and emotionally and psychologically. Yes. And, um, and so, yeah, like you said, it's not, it's not maybe one day this huge thing happened, but it's that for years you were, you were constantly on guard. Right. Yeah. It becomes a, it becomes a normalized, the, 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 uh, the, the defense mechanisms we develop, uh, where we, um, we avoid situations that might humiliate, uh, we go into perfectionism or controlling behaviors or, mm -hmm. Uh, addictions. Uh, these are all self-medicating ways to try to uh, not have more shame. Yeah. Um, sometimes we do things to put ourselves down. Uh, we attack ourselves. And sometimes we go to rage and cynicism and sarcasm attacking other people. Yeah. And if you, if you stay in those long enough and use them long enough, it certainly is a dysfunctional, creates dysfunctional relationships externally and then internally as well yeah hmm. well and i think one of those um one of those examples of long you know the long drawn out sort of trauma is um when when you have you you talk about those rule rules of dysfunctional families and um I what one of those I think about is that, you know, we just don't talk about that stuff. And, right. and so, so, you know, like Bradshaw was talking about, you know, maybe something happened and maybe, maybe it wasn't even, you know, on a grand scale, but then you never get to talk about it. And it, and it makes you, I mean, it almost makes you feel like you're going crazy sometimes. Um, right. Can you, can you talk about some of those, uh, those rules of dysfunctional families that you've talked about before? Yeah, there, there are there are lots of ancillary rules, but there are three core rules that make a family uh, more dysfunctional. The more rules are enforced, the more dysfunctional they are. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one. The first one is don't talk about it. Yeah. So as a kid, you start talking about something that's pretty obvious to you, and you start getting that look that says you better be quiet. And then you you get a look that says if you don't be quiet, you're going to be you know in trouble. Yeah. And sometimes you get you do get the smack, um, but also another way that another way that rule is enforced is where people don't say don't talk about it, but they say you're wrong. That's not that. It's something else. Oh yeah. Uh, for example, an example would be uh, that's not rage. That your father was just righteously indignant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Now, today, we would use the term gaslighting. Oh, yeah. Where we're gaslighting. What that does is for a child is it starts creating a sense of doubt about whether they can trust their own experience. Mm, yeah. And so it starts creating dependency on what other people say. I'm not going to trust my own sense of self. And again, that's not a cognitive response. That's just a, an innate response. Yeah. A, another rule that's uh, often enforced is uh, don't feel what you feel unless I'm told it's a good feeling. Yeah. So you get things like, well, how could you possibly feel that way after all we've done for you? Mm. Uh, good boys don't feel that way. Good Christian boys never feel that way. And so now shame gets attached to the feelings we have. Mm. You've already learned not to talk about it. And you've got the feelings there. And sometimes the feelings are anger or hurt or disappointment or sadness. But you're not supposed to feel them. Big boys don't cry. Yeah. So what we typically do is we start shutting down our feelings. Mm. We, shut, we, we shut down access to our heart, to our body, and we just become stoic. Yeah. And I, I have people all the time who, in my seminars, you probably remember some, who would say, when, when I point out how stoic they are, they would say, uh, I've always been that way. Mm. I've, I've, I've never met a stoic baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? The third rule is, first is don't talk, second is don't feel, third is don't trust. Um, there's like, um, some families are like a movie set on the outside. It looks a certain way. It looks really nice. Yeah. But inside it's nothing like it looks like on the outside, but you are not to let anybody outside know what goes on inside. If you do, you're, you know, you're a traitor and yeah. traitors get kicked out. Oh yeah. And so you, you have to begin lying either overtly or covertly to keep up the facade. And you also learn it because you, when you, as a kid, you often share some feelings or some thoughts or something to, with a parent, and then you might get beat up with it, or uh, whether the next time they're angry, or it could be an hour or two hours or ten years, suddenly you're beat up with it, and it's like, well, I, I'm never going to tell them anything again. Yeah. Now, mm. those, those three rules, don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, those three rules perfectly designed and a, a block to intimacy. Oh, yeah. Mm. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about sexuality. You got a lot of sex, but <laughs> I'm talking about a real deep relationship because I can't talk about it. I can't feel what I feel without feeling I'm at risk, and I can't trust this other person. Wow. And, and that, you know, I bring my dysfunction from my family in, and my wife brings hers from her family they look different, but the same rules, and we wonder why we have a relationship problem. Mm, yeah. The, the other piece is that those three rules often work in business settings. Okay. There are a lot of business, a lot of business settings where you can't talk about real stuff. Yeah. And, and you sure can't express your feelings, and you can't. You learn you can't trust the other coworkers or the boss. Mm, yeah. The sad part for me is that those rules too often apply in church and spiritual settings. Yeah. Where we cannot really talk about real issues. You've got to put a positive spin on everything. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how I'm really feeling because I would be considered a bad Christian if I told you how I was really feeling. 
and I just can't really trust you. You're going to gossip. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's a it's a becomes a toxic spiritual environment. Well, that's where we're going to stop for this um, part of the conversation. I hope that you have enjoyed and gained as much from this as I have. Paul just has so much insight into shame and trauma and the dynamic it has in spirituality and relationships. He just has um, so much wisdom in that. Um, check back for the next episode because we will continue to discuss these themes, but we'll also look at how to move forward and how to find healing um, so that this shame and, and trauma so that they, they don't continue to dominate our lives. Um, I thought it was really fascinating um, how he talked about those three core rules of a dysfunctional family and that, you know, he mentioned that could be a part of um, a workplace and part of, and part of spiritual communities. And, and I was thinking, you know, because I, I wanted to do this podcast to explore that metaphor more of the God in my closet and the God who embraces our skeletons. And I think that those core rules can be present in our relationship with God as well, depending on how we've been taught to view God, what we believe about God. And if we see him as vengeful and, and angry, then those core rules might be part of our relationship with God as well. We might not feel comfortable to talk to God about certain things because they might seem off limits because God only deals with the quote holy things. We, we might not feel comfortable to feel things because we might think um, because of past experiences, we might think that they're shameful feelings or that God won't look on those feelings because he doesn't look on sin or can't be around people who aren't, you know, don't make the cut, that sort of thing. And we might, on top of that, feel like we can't trust God, especially if we see him as vengeful and wrathful and has a temper problem and will fly off the handle if we don't toe the line. It makes it really hard to trust someone like that. And um, if, if that's present in our relationship, I just want to remind us that God accepts us skeletons and all. Everything that, that's in us, the, the good and the bad, the things that we, we struggle with. And that th those dark parts, those things that we feel ashamed of, God's actually more comfortable with those than we are. And he wants to work through those with us. So check back for the next part of the conversation. I think it'll be really I'm encouraging and worthwhile, and I will leave you again, reminding you that nothing in the world can separate you from the love of Christ. You are in him, and he is in you. Take care. <laughs>